You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Grace. Grace. It's what we say around dinner time. It's also our daughter Hannah's middle name. It's also one of my favorite songs on one of my favorite albums by one of my favorite bands. If you've been in church world a while, you know that grace is amazing. It's wonderful. It's matchless. All these great words. But uh, this morning, I want to tell you a quick story about how I got to see a very gracious moment in a very profound way. So a few years ago, I had the opportunity to play a part in leading a men's event in Angola State Penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana. It's a maximum security prison uh, where 97% of the inmates are actually there for life. Um, It has a reputation for being one of the bloodiest prisons in the United States, but God is doing an amazing work in there and we got to see it firsthand. So um, we wanted to do this men's event where half of the speakers for the event would be outside and half would be from the inside because there's actually a seminary inside of this prison. Half of the worship team would be from the outside and half of the worship team would be inside, would be inmates. Um, we had arranged it where um, we would actually stay in locked cells on former death row, which was a little uh, creepy when you think about it. Um, we ate all of our meals next to men, um, who most of whom would never see the outside of prison again. Um, I met men in that week who I know that I'm probably never going to meet or see again, uh, at least this side of heaven, but it was an incredible experience and I'll never forget it. The highlight, or really the mountaintop of the entire event, happened in the last day. We had arranged for Mike Singletary to speak. And as Mike Singletary stood up in front of this room, about 350 men, half inmates, half men from the outside, he shared his faith in Christ. He shared his testimony and where he had placed all of his hope in Jesus. And as he got to this one point in his talk, he just broke down and wept. After his talk, a man who was serving a life sentence for multiple offenses, including double homicide, led us in worship, and 350 men, most of whom are never going to get out of there, stood up, and we all joined hands together, and we sang, my chains are gone, my heart is free, my God, my Savior, has ransomed me, and like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. I don't know about you, when you sing that in a church, it's moving, but when you sing, my chains are gone, with a group of men who know that they don't deserve it. It's a very powerful moment. Every time I think about it, it gives me chills when God brings it back up to my memory. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's where we're heading today. So if you're just joining us, this is the second week in our teaching series called Preparing the Way. And here's the idea. As the days get shorter, the nights get longer, we do well to prepare. Our souls kind of naturally relax into this posture of preparation. We prepare for meals, for parties, for guests, shopping lists. We, we make lists. We set tables. We book tickets. Maybe fewer tickets than last year, but still nonetheless. We also prepare our hearts for Advent, this time of year where we celebrate the birth of King Jesus. We're not the only culture to prepare. Um, 
The entire Old Testament, especially the part of the Old Testament called the prophets, told God's people how to prepare for this one day future king called Messiah. Last week, we saw how Isaiah called God's people to welcome this joy bringer, this Messiah who would bring joy by meeting very deep needs. And we saw through this conversation in John 4 where Jesus did exactly that. Jesus brought deep joy by meeting a very deep need. Well, today we're going to do the exact same thing. We're going to take a look at this prophecy from Isaiah, and then we're going to catapult into the book of John. And we're going to take these two things together and learn about why Jesus's kingship is so important. And I think this week, probably more than any week this year, the fact that we are servants of a king is a privilege, and it's something that we really need to sink our teeth into. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so with that, let's head to Isaiah, this Old Testament book, almost in the middle of your Bible, just to the right a few pages. We're going to take a look at Isaiah chapter 11. Now this prophecy from Isaiah actually breaks down into three chunks, and we're going to hit them really quick. Um, Each one of them asks a different question. First, um, Isaiah talks about this king's lineage, then he talks about this king's rule, and then he talks about the effect of this king's rule. What's that? What's actually going to happen? For this king. And characteristic to his writing style, Isaiah unloads word picture after word picture, just metaphor after metaphor to answer these questions. First, this king's lineage. Where will this king come from? So let's take a look in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. So Isaiah starts this prophecy with a really weird image, and he doesn't stay there long, but we got to get our head around it. He says something about this stump, Jesse. What's that about? Here's the idea. This king would be in the line of David. Jesse, the Jesse he's talking about, is in David's family. Right? And so something about this king would be connected to David's line. And here's the larger point. This is Isaiah saying that something that you thought was dead, namely the Davidic kingdom, this high point in God's people, this thing that you thought was like a dead stump is actually going to be alive again. And it's going to be alive in a way that you've never expected. And like his ancestor David, this messianic king who will one day come into this world has three characteristics. He has a spiritually motivated mental ability. That's that idea of wisdom and understanding. He also has a spiritually sound moral ability to make judgments. That's that bit of counsel and might. And he also has this deep experiential knowledge of God. That's the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So already this is somebody pretty special. This isn't just an ordinary king. There's something unique about this king who will one day come. All those character traits lead into the second part of Isaiah's prophecy, this king's rule. And it answers the question, well, what will this king actually do? And then in verses 3 through 5, Isaiah lays out this incredible, seemingly impossible job description. Here's what he says. Take a look in verse 3. He says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And then some dark imagery. He says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That's a lot to wrap your head around. 
But here's his point. This king has a character, a righteous character that will enable him to do the right thing. He will make ethical choices because he's an ethical person. Now, lest I get too close and too timely for comfort, those words have never been used to describe any earthly leader ever. They always fall short. I don't care how good a president or a prince or a king or somebody is. They never are described with righteousness and faithfulness ever. So this is somebody outside of this world. But then just to round the whole picture out, Isaiah, you can almost imagine him leaning back in his chair, taking a deep breath and his eyes lift off the page and the Holy Spirit inspires him with this wonderfully imaginative picture about what comes next. And this is the third part of his prophecy, this king's effect. What will he actually do, but what will linger? What will be the point? What will happen because he's here? Take a look in verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. The little child shall lead them. That's an interesting insight. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the adder's den. It's all very strange stuff. He's saying like, there's these things that were formerly enemies that are actually going to live in peace together. This incredible picture. All these images conspire to say the same thing, like peace like you've never known before. Can you actually imagine? And then like this penultimate symbol crash at the end, he says, the earth will be filled of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's like this, oh my goodness, like things are almost like back to Eden again, aren't they? It's this beautiful picture. So by the time Isaiah finishes his picture of this king, and his brush strokes find their way onto the canvas, and we step back to get a picture of this king, you find yourself kind of silently saying, this sounds impossible. Who is this person? A king with mental ability and moral ability who deeply fears God and sincerely knows God, a king with a righteous character that will enable him to do the right thing, and a king that can bring peace by promoting restored relationships. Who is this king? And if you're God's people, you're thinking back, you're going, we've never had a king like that. We've never even heard of a king like that. We can't even imagine what that would be like. And from his mountaintop, his voice echoes across time, as Isaiah says, exactly. So that's the picture of this king that reverberated through 700 years of history. Let's get to John. We're going to leave Isaiah on his mountaintop and find our way to a dusty corner of the temple. A crowd has gathered around an intriguing teacher named Jesus. Here's the scene. Take a look in John chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 1 just to set the context. They each went to his own house. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. But early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Now, you guys know this, but this is basically the biblical version of once upon a time. It just sort of sets the stage for what's about to happen. But before this scene really takes off, we need to pay attention to what's around it. So Jesus has just gotten up to Galilee. Remember that two and a half day journey that we had last week from, some, from Judah through, or Judea through Samaria up to Galilee. What's happened since he got here? Well, it's been a busy little while. First, Jesus healed a Roman official's son from a fatal fever. 
Then he taught by the Sea of Galilee where he fed 5,000 people miraculously and then he walks on water. Then the next day, this carb-crashed crowd is still hanging around the shore and Jesus teaches them again and he says these amazing things like, hey, you know that bread you just ate yesterday? I'm the bread of life. You're like, whoa, it's a pretty bold claim. Then he says, I have come down from heaven to do the will of my father. Okay. And then he says, no one can even come to me unless it's been granted to him by my father. You're like, man, presumptuous much? Like, who is this guy? Then at the Feast of Tabernacles, which happens just before this, this holiday where God's people celebrate the harvest, it's kind of like our, their version of Thanksgiving, right? There's family in town. It's this big feast. They celebrate God's provision, lots of food. Everyone's enjoying a party. This upstart carpenter's son named Jesus, who never went to school, was never mentored by a rabbi, was never taught, was never trained, stands up in the middle of the temple at the height of the feast, packed crowd, and he starts teaching again. And he says some even more outlandish things. He says things like, my teaching, it's not mine. My teaching is from the one who sent me. And then he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Kind of like a public way of having that private conversation he had back in John 4. And then he says this, which is probably the most insinuating comment he could make. He says, I don't teach of my own accord. I don't even come down here on my own accord, but I come from him who sent me and he who sent me is true. But the trouble is none of you even know him. Like that's just unbelievably bold to say. Their jaws would have hit the floor. Here's the point of all of this. I want you to understand that it's getting harder and harder for this crowd to ignore Jesus. He isn't just some quaint aspiring rabbi with a small following of ragtag fishermen and dropouts. He's getting a lot of tension. Things are really heating up. The pitch is building into a crescendo. In fact, if you turn back to the preceding chapter, you'd find these dark, ominous phrases like the crowd muttered to themselves. They grumbled about him and some were planning to kill him. All that to say that when Jesus sits down here in John chapter 8, He sits down and he starts teaching again in the temple. We shouldn't see this as this quiet, pastoral, calm picture where his disciples are sitting bemusedly smiling to themselves while everything just goes on. This scene is much different. Authorities gather in the shadows with lowered voices and furrowed brows. Jesus' disciples now only speak in hushed, whispered tones because they're very aware of how Jesus' teaching is actually putting their own lives in jeopardy. The tension is thick in the air. This just doesn't feel right. And that explains what happens next. Take a look in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, that is, in the middle of the crowd, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Here's John's little comment. He says, They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now this is a horrifying scene. We should not be okay with this. This doesn't happen much in our culture, at least publicly. Here's what's going on. The Pharisees and the scribes are gunning for Jesus. They're not happy about this Roman official's son healing business because that's kind of like working for the enemy. 
They're not sure what to make of this feeding a crowd of 5,000 and walking on air thing. They are definitely not in on this whole, I am the bread of life bit. And so they've got to do something to shut Jesus down and shut him up. So what do they do? It's a holiday and the town is packed. They're scouring the town, kicking open doors, turning over rocks until they find someone who doesn't fit their version of holiness. In this case, it's a woman with some shady dealings with men. And so they bring her to Jesus to find out where his loyalties lie. Here's the issue. If Jesus lets her off the hook, then he's going against Moses, and that's blasphemy. But if he indicts her and says, yeah, you need to stone her, well, then he's inserting himself between her and the Roman authorities, and that's treason. And they think they've got him pegged. But what we need to see here is this woman isn't on trial here. Jesus is. And while the Pharisees think that they're running the show, he's about to do something that they could have never expected. But before we get to that, let's stop for a minute. Who are these Pharisees anyway? Like, what's the deal with these guys? The Pharisees in the first century are a subset of the Jewish elite who were experts in the law, the Old Testament commands of Moses. And the scribes were kind of like their little henchmen. The Pharisees believed that if they did the right thing, if they acted the right way, if they performed with all the right kind of nuances, that God would be pleased with them. And then they looked to the scribes when it came time to cite chapter and verse. The Pharisees were these outwardly perfect pretty boys. (laughs) And everybody knew, though, that they were nowhere near as good as they seemed. They were a car with a fresh paint job, brand new tires, and a salvage title. They were this house with top-of-the-line siding and a cracked foundation. Well-trimmed landscaping, black mold in the basement. You get the idea. On the outside, these guys are great. But the outside is not what God looks for. And if you keep looking at the outside, maintaining the outside, judging the outside, you're going to forget to take care of what's on the inside. More on that in a minute. Everything that these guys cared about, they shouldn't have. And everything they did care was complete fabrication. Because everything they actually should have cared about, they were nowhere near God's heart. And just to be clear, Pharisees exist today. People who define their Christian life by their behavior. They go with different names, but they're everywhere because it's always easier to change your behavior from the outside in than to let Jesus change you from the inside out. More on that in a couple of minutes. Here's why this is so important. The Pharisees' obsession with behavior ties right back to Isaiah. Listen to how Isaiah introduces his book. This is in chapter one. I just want to read it to you. Just listen to how he builds a frame around what he wants to say. This is God talking through the voice of Isaiah, and he's speaking up and he's looking out. Here's what he says. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls and of lambs and of goats. When you come before, or come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts which interestingly, God commanded them to observe. Now he says, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
This is the bleeding heart of God pleading with his people. Stop doing the empty ritual, maintaining the outside performance. I can't take it anymore. Show me that you love me by the way you treat the broken, the fatherless, the widow. Seek justice, correct oppression. You don't want to do that? I get it. Let me describe how I'm going to change you. Skip down to verse 18. He says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll become like wool. You need grace. You don't need performance. (laughs) This is the distillation of everything that God will say through Isaiah. I don't want ritual. I want regeneration. Now, 700 years later, back to the temple courts. Jesus is teaching. Do you see what he's doing here? With this group that's guilty of the exact same thing that God's people were 700 years earlier. They've just celebrated a feast. They've just made their sacrifices. They've just lit the incense. They've made their offering. They've literally walked in the temple courts, convocation, assembly. They're doing the exact same thing 700 years later, and they still haven't gotten it. God doesn't want ritual. He wants regeneration. The Pharisees, with Jesus here in the court, they had hoped to pull him into this academic discussion, but he doesn't bite. Why? Because here's something you got to know about Jesus. When someone's personal dignity is at stake, he doesn't have time for peripheral and pointless details. (laughs) So how does he answer their question? What do you say, teacher? He answers them, but not at all in the way that they were expecting. Take a look in verse 6. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. That's a very interesting image. Little detail. We don't know what he wrote, so I don't want to waste too much time on speculation, but whatever he did write didn't slow them down. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. You almost feel that shift, can't you? Jesus has been sitting. And he writes something on the ground. Then he stands up. And they're going, where is Jesus going with this whole thing? Who is he on? Is he with Moses or is he with Rome? Is he going to uphold the law or is this woman going to go scot-free? And just like we saw last week, Jesus has this masterful way of cutting through the clutter in an academic discussion to get to the heart of the issue. Last week, it was a woman at the well who wanted to talk about worship. And Jesus says, no, 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 we're talking about your identity. This week, it's a crowd of people who would rather shine the light of condemnation on somebody else than see themselves correctly. So Jesus does what he loves to do. He grabs the spotlight and he shines it right back on them. As if to say, really? You want to talk about sin's darkness? Do you really want to talk about that salvage title that you've got behind your name? Let's talk about your cracked foundation. Let's talk about your moldy basement. Let's go. I'm in. You want to stone her? Fine. But let's make sure that you don't have any sin at all. This is Isaiah's king. With moral ability, impeccable character, who's about to bring peace through grace. Take a look in verse 9. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. You can almost see it, can't you? This woman standing in the middle of a crowd. Her head bowed low, but her eyes 
daring to look up every once in a while at Jesus. She's desperate for him. And then this crowd, you could hear their sandals shift in the dirt as they begin to walk away, maybe kicking up small clouds of dust as they go. And then the muffled sound of every rock as it falls back into the dust. One by one, a few at first, and then more and then more until silence. And it's just Jesus and her. And now the real power of this scene comes out. Verse 10. Jesus stood and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. Jesus never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. He asks a question because he's trying to lead someone to a place that's very personal and very deep. And this is no exception. So Jesus asks her two questions. The first one is almost comical. Is no one else here? Where'd they go? The second one is deeply personal. Her answer, verse 11, she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. How good do you think that first breath felt that she took after she heard his words? How good was her first step of freedom? Jesus does more for us than we could ever do for ourselves. And I know what you're saying, some of you, because your hearts are represented by some people who are there. You're wondering, well, okay, like, did she really go and sin no more? Did she really change? I mean, that's like a lifestyle kind of thing that she's living in. That's a really hard habit to break. So let's drive this home a bit. I want to turn our time now from Isaiah, from John to 2020 and where we are because this echoing of grace throughout the Bible has profound implications for how we see ourselves in 2020. So I want to give you four implications all about grace. Four implications. These all arise from understanding the position of this nameless, anonymous, faceless, but graced woman. She's us. We are the graced ones. So undeserving. So four implications. Implication number one, grace takes you as you are. Grace takes you as you are. Grace, God's unmerited favor. Grace is the reflex of God whereby he loves us in our unloveliness. Grace condescends, grace kneels. Grace gets dirty and gets in the dirt. Grace messes with you. At least it does me, I don't understand it. And that's the real power of this scene, isn't it? Because she's like, what are you doing? You're a rabbi, you're holy, you're not supposed to be here with me. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know what I wish I could take back? You have this powerful juxtaposition of this righteous king and this unrighteous woman. This woman is literally thrown at Jesus. You can almost imagine the Pharisees grabbing her arm and pushing her in the middle of this crowd. And what's he do? He stands up for her. He silences her shame and he sends her accusers away and the crowd evaporates. <laughs> it's interesting. I don't know if you caught it. She doesn't say a thing until the last verse in this entire scene. And it's a three-word reply to Jesus where she says, no one, Lord. That's big. Jesus carries this entire picture. That's important. Why? You don't need to clean your life up before you come to Jesus. 
Grace takes you exactly as you are. It doesn't matter if you come to Jesus, if you're thrown at him, if you crawl to him, if you cry to him, or you come walking to him, whatever. You come in your weakness, you come in your shame, you just come. It doesn't matter. You let him defend your cause, you let him fight your fight, and you rest in his strength. Grace takes you exactly as you are. And that's implication number one. Implication number two, grace takes you as you are, but grace refuses to leave you there. (laughs) I think it's worth noting that Jesus, kneeling there in the dirt with this woman, he doesn't condemn her, but he doesn't condone her either. That's his masterful leadership. Grace takes you as you are, but it refuses to leave you that way. Here's the point, and this sounds a little crass, but when Jesus gets a hold of your life, expect him to mess with you. When you open the door, when you welcome his grace, it isn't long before he starts rearranging the furniture, painting the walls, and doing a complete interior overhaul. And if Jesus works in your life, and if he ever has, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus changes you from the inside because that's the only way to make lasting transformation in the life of a sinner. In a world that only wants to shine light on your sin and expose your failures, grace asks you to believe the impossible, that you are not your addiction, you are not your past, you are not your failures, that there is a reality deeper than those things that have characterized your life, that you are loved unconditionally by a holy God who'd rather die than be without you, who's willing to step down into this dirt clod that we call earth to win you back. And he's ready to pronounce your freedom if you will only hide yourself in the finished work of the cross. And it's that overflowing love that loosens your bonds, that lifts your eyes and finally frees you to live the life that God wants you to live. And so when this king sets up shop in your soul, welcome him. That's implication number two. Grace takes you as you are, but it refuses to leave you there. Implication number three. Desperation is a virtue. Desperation is a virtue. I believe that God has used these last several months in the life of the church to, particularly the church in the West, here in the global West, to remind us of something that we seem to have forgotten in recent years, that desperation is a virtue and that our primary posture before Jesus ought to be desperation. Like it is a good thing to find yourself, God, I don't know what to do, but if you don't show up, I'm lost. God, I'm counting on you. I'm betting it all on you. I'm pinning all my hope on you. That's what desperation sounds like. This woman is in this spot of profound desperation. She's either dying at the hand of man or she's living by the grace of God. There is no third option. She has lost the luxury of casual comfortability. And I think that there's something that we need to see there. Desperation, it's scary. It's uncomfortable, but it's really good for our souls. Because here's what I think. I think that God could do more with one person who's desperate for him than a room full of people who aren't. Just to get specific, this is not just in our church, but it's in a lot of churches. The church used to argue about worship style, right? It used to be about volume and hymns or choruses, right? I used to get emails about lukewarm coffee. And I used to get phone calls about how the temperature in the sanctuary was either too warm or too cold. Funny how none of that matters anymore. What's God doing? I think he's purging. I think he's cleansing. I think he's waking us up and calling us to become back who we are supposed to be, people desperate for him. Now people are just saying like, I just want to worship in the same room with people. I don't care about the coffee. I just want to be with my friends. 
we're recovering a sense of desperation and that's really, really good because God could do more with one person who's really desperate for him than a room full of people who aren't. I believe that God is growing the North Canton Chapel in the shadows. I think he's preparing us for something that's right around the corner. God has good days ahead for our church and the church, but they're going to be very hard. They're going to take a lot of resolve. They're going to take a lot of grit and they're going to take a lot of courage. And I pray and I hope and I really do that we never lose our sense of desperation. Desperation is a virtue. That's implication number three. Here's implication number four. You've heard me say this before, but it's worth saying again. The gospel is the great leveler. It levels the playing field. See, I, I think we're all kind of like little Pharisees at heart. At least I am. We have this natural inclination to like excuse our sin by comparing it to somebody else's. And we say these things kind of like, well, I may have, you know, da-da-da-da-da, but I've never da-da-da-da-da, right? Or at least I don't blah, 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 blah. Or like, you know. We always have this eye out for comparison when we start talking about sin. Why do we do that? I think a lot of time, it's like our quiet, often internal way of bolstering our private pride while excusing ourselves from Jesus's command, which he modeled in John 8, to love those who might make us uncomfortable. And I go, well, I don't have to love them. I'd rather compare myself to them. And Jesus's not so subtle implication is, hey, Moldy basement, you are in the same boat. The gospel is the great leveler. That's what so infuriated the Pharisees in this scene. Don't kid yourself. These guys didn't leave repentant, like with their tail between their legs and they're contrite and they're like, oh yes, we need to go reevaluate our lives. They left mad. And I know that because within a few weeks, they're trying to kill Jesus again. It has a, the gospel has a way of exposing these things in our heart. And we need to welcome the fact that the gospel is the great leveler. Here's the gospel point underneath all of that is that judgment fuels personal pride. And at the same time, it stifles your ability to genuinely love people. Because if you spend your time judging others and evaluating people based on their sin and how it's a slightly different version of your sin, you will nurse your own pride and you will never be able to freely love them like God's called you to. But grace Grace levels the playing field. That's the astounding and frankly stupefying effect of this scene that the Pharisees, this group who built their reputation on outward perfection, these guys are on equal footing before God as the woman they hope to accuse. The gospel is the great leveler. And guys, that should humble us. If grace doesn't humble you, it's not grace you've experienced. So a closing thought. I want to leave you with the last verse of Isaiah's vision. I want to return here again because I think it gives us a wonderful picture of what happens when we sit under the rule of this gracious king. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 11 verse 9. He says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When it all comes down to it, that's what I want. Isn't it? that what you want? The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. How? Completely, as the waters cover the sea. It isn't our efforts that get us there. It isn't our church attendance that get us there. It's not even our perfect theology that gets us there. It's definitely not our perfect behavior. It's how tightly we cling to our gracious King. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let me pray for us. Father, it is good to come to you 
It's good to come to you because you are gracious. You've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. You have restored our relationship. You've shown us grace when we didn't deserve it. And not just once, but over and over and over again. It's a humbling thought to think even today we are going to sin. Tomorrow we're going to sin. But God, your grace goes before us and you've already forgiven us because of the cross. Father, help us to be mindful of that. And I'm asking God that if there's somebody watching right now that doesn't know the power of your cross and they feel stuck in their addiction and they feel like those things define them, God, would you liberate them in your power and let them know that they are loved by you so deeply that you sent your son to die in their place so they can have hope. Father, we say thank you, thank you, thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.